And good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany, uh, both here in the sanctuary, across the street as well in the chapel, also online. I'm uh, thrilled that you could be with us as we continue in a series, Sustainable Faith, Soil Care for the Soul, wherein we're addressing what are called spiritual disciplines. And uh, this morning, we're looking at two practices that really will help our faith remain vibrant over the centuries, and those two practices would be uh, Sabbath-keeping and praying for others. And so please join me now in prayer as we pray for our time together, and then we'll look at the text. Father, thanks so much that you're here within these walls uh, to teach us and to speak to us and to comfort us and to challenge us, challenge us and encourage us. I pray, Father, that we'd hear what you have to say and that we'd be responsive to what you reveal, and we'll thank you for that as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And so we're talking about Sabbath-keeping today, and kind of to frame the importance of the discussion, I'm going to get very practical just for a minute here, and ask you if you knew this, uh, every country in Europe has a longer average life expectancy than the United States. Every country in Europe does. Uh, we are 31st in the world in life expectancy, just behind um, Costa Rica, just ahead of Cuba. So that's where we are. And all those countries that have longer life expectancies than ours, they all work fewer hours per week on average than we do. They all take more vacation on average than we do. They all take longer lunch hours than we do. And what's not to love about a long lunch hour anyway? And, and uh, there's a lower percentage of people dying of heart disease. So here's the kind of the thesis for just a minute here. If we're working longer hours in order to live healthier, longer lives, it isn't working. Does this make sense? Like if you think that by working longer hours, you're gonna live longer because you have more wealth, not true. So just for a minute here, I'm gonna ask the question, like where did that mindset even come from? Because uh, back in the 1950s, we were having a very different conversation as a culture. We were actually worried in the 50s about what we would all be doing with all the free time that we would be gaining through industrialization and automa automation. In the 50s, I'm quoting from a book entitled Sabbath, in the 50s, the national dialogue was preoccupied with concerns such as, what will we do with all our free time? Experts confidently predicted that thanks to the efficiency of automation, automation and the proliferation of near-miraculous labor-saving devices, we'd all be working 20 to 30 hours a week wouldn't that have been nice, right? And it would be overwhelmed by the sheer weight of so much free time. So kind of the question on the table is, well, what happened? Well, here's what happened. Mueller goes on. He says, instead of taking the benefits of our modern technological civilization in the form of free time, we converted the benefits into more money. And this imbalance, he argues, creates a time famine with innumerable consequences for our personal family and community life. For example, a 1995 study showed that adolescents who regularly spend time interacting with their families are far less likely to become uh, addicted to anything, alcohol, prescription drugs, any other thing. In other words, the more time you spend with your family, the less addictive you will be. And further, when we're tired from overwork, working 50, 60 hours a week, we cannot participate in family and civic life the way we're intended to. Good citizenship requires time to listen to fears and dreams of our neighbors and our children and our family members and to care for the poor and hungry and to build and run good, wholesome schools and hospitals. 
And so when you look at the study decline in party membership, voter tallies, attendance at public meetings, school boards, it's not just cynicism that is causing people to withdraw. That's its own subject. It's busyness and, 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 and weariness. And so people are kind of stepping out. And, and, and so what, what's happened, as Mueller continues in a, in a different chapter, is he goes back and he examines the roots of this. How, like, why do we now value money more than time. And, and most of us in the room don't say we value money more than time. Most of us say we value time more than money, but our practices belie that we often value money more than time, right? And the question is why? And to answer that, I take you back to the mid-20s. During a time of great economic expansion, there's a guy, Walter Henderson, an economist, and he's lamenting back in the mid-20s. He says, this is what he says, it's perfectly clear that middle-class America already buys more than they need, uh, and Grimes is sounding an alarm. He foresaw that the American citizen, with a long, proud history of self-sufficiency, support from family members, was in danger of becoming, and this is the word, in danger of becoming content. Isn't that weird? In danger of becoming content. Soon, men and women, having worked hard and long hours in the garden and factory and kitchen to obtain food, clothing, and shelter, would realize they had everything they needed. And then they'd realize that they could now rest together happy and satisfied. And then he says, if that happens, there will be large groups too content to buy anything. That's what he says. <laughs> and so, he, sounding that alarm, introduced, and now I'm quoting, the new, and this is new in the mid-20s, the new, quote-unquote, gospel of consumption. Uh, it was met with some resistance at first, as most workers did not seem to desire new goods and services, larger automobiles, more time-saving appliances, more amusements, as spontaneously as they longed for things in the past, things like food, clothing, and shelter. <laughs> Can you imagine? People only wanted food, clothing, and shelter, nothing else. And so it took dedicated efforts of investors, marketing experts, advertisers, and business leaders to fuel the drive to increase consumption. With this strategic shift, the business community broke its historical concentration on increasing production and replaced it with a completely new and improved version of progress, the gospel of mass consumption. This, in turn, gave birth to a new and improved, improved, in quotes, advertising industry, right? So that we could be convinced that we need things that we don't actually need at all, so that we could buy stuff, and then if we buy, if we buy stuff, then we have to work more to sustain the stuff that we bought, and so we end up buying cars with, uh, you know, heated seats, because your butt can never be cold, right? And so <laughs> now, you, you, like, you've got to work longer hours to get this heated seat. And, and so what happens is we've, we've become, uh, through the cultural mores, we've become uh, culture consumers. And passive consumption is not as, as beautiful as being a creative producer. And discontent is not as beautiful as contentment. And anxiety and fear and sleeplessness is not as beautiful as rest. So like in a, in a culture where violation of the Sabbath is just taken for granted. I mean, it's, like, this, so, this so saturates our culture. We don't even, like it's just normal. We, call, we still call each other out a little bit on like sexual stuff, like Weinstein comes up and we're all offended. Theft comes up, we're all offended. Somebody 
you know, opens fire in Las Vegas, they murder people, we're all offended. Those are all violations of Ten Commandments that offend us. This one doesn't offend us anymore. Why? We're all guilty, that's why. And, and, and we're guilty at our own peril, right? Because we're working more, sleeping less, gaining weight, gaining addictions, having more heart attacks. So it's time to ask a question here, what does God think of all this? And, and when we do, we're going to see that God invites us to recover these two spiritual practices that will lead to a rhythm of work and rest. And those two spiritual practices, very simple, practice the Sabbath first, and then, and then second, pray for others. So very quickly, I want to go through these principles of practicing the Sabbath. So you understand that first the roots of the Sabbath, and then how the Sabbath became spiritualized and legalized and neglected. Let's start there. Roots of the Sabbath. God invented the Sabbath. And God invented the Sabbath from the very beginning uh, where it says in the, in the creation narrative, after six days, it says God rested on the seventh day. And hear me, God didn't rest because God's tired, right? God, the, the word rest here, God pauses. And the reason God pauses is to celebrate and rejoice in what's been created. So there's this rhythm, create, step back, enjoy, Right? Create, step back, enjoy. That's God's rhythm. And so then God builds this six to one ratio of work to rest into the fabric of humanity. The first time it shows up in the Bible is Exodus chapter 16 where Israel's wandering through the wilderness and God provides bread, manna, that kind of shows up every morning and God says, look, uh, six days a week gather, what God says, an omar full of manna, that's about this much manna for each person. And so there's this kind of bread on the ground, you go gather it and then you eat it. And then what does God say? But on the seventh, excuse me, on the sixth day, on the sixth day, uh, gather two omars of manna. And the reason you gather two on the sixth day is because on the seventh day, what? There is no, there's no um, manna on the ground. So you go out for your omar on day seven, there's none there. Gather two on day six, why? So that on day seven, listen to this, on day seven, sleep in, relax. You, know, you can quit for a day. And just celebrate the provision of God. No need to get up and gather manna. So uh, what happens? Well, you read the story. And of course, day seven comes. What happens? It says in Exodus 16, so on day seven, some people got up and they went out to gather. Those were the Americans. They got up to gather. (laughs) Because they're like this. We want more. We need more. Who knows if God's going to come through on Monday, so we got to gather on Sunday. Or Sunday and Saturday, however you want to say it, this is the deal. There's this this lack of ability to trust God, and God is teaching us to trust God through the institution of the Sabbath. And it's a gift to you. Rest. That's what God says, right? So, So then, this becomes law in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments that God wrote in little tablets on stone. The, the, the commandment of the Sabbath elevates its importance because it's now one of these 10 things that reflect the character of God. And so if you're an image bearer of God, God's not a thief, don't steal. God's not, uh, uh, you know, covetous, so don't covet. God doesn't cheat on you, so don't commit adultery. And by the way, God rests, so you rest. Not only you, you rest, your animals rest, there's this rhythm, even the land rests. God is creating a rhythm of work and rest so that, God, here's what God is saying to us. Look, work hard, fine, work hard, but one day a week, say what? Enough. And by the way, uh, we don't have time to deal with this very much, but also God's rhythm is this. There's evening and morning a day. 
And the, and the implication here is that, is that, and I understand there's shift work and stuff like that, so don't legalize this, but, but, but evening is the rest time. So there's rest and there's work. Every day, rest, work. Sun comes up, go out, do your thing. Sun goes down, and then here's an idea, rest. Rather than staying up on spreadsheets, more, more, more. No, rest. God's, God's not suggesting this. It's a command, right? So uh, God is saying here, we're all made for this rhythm of work and rest. And so he, this is a word from God, just like adultery, just like killing, just like stealing. God is saying, one day a week, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stop and say, enough and enjoy. Enough work, so I'll step back and enjoy the privilege of work. Enough parties, enough social obligations, enough travel, enough money, enough eating, enough exercise, enough sex, enough, enough Game of Thrones, enough YouTube videos, enough, right? We're called to stop. Called to stop. Invited to stop. And here's the deal. We Americans were very good at delayed gratification. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, you remember that Stanford marshmallow test where the kid is given a marshmallow and he gets two if he can avoid eating the one for 10 minutes or whatever it is. Well, this room is filled with people who would opt for the two marshmallows, right? You're highly educated, intellectual, and those are people who would say, yeah, man, I see the writing on the wall. I want two marshmallows. I'm just going to close my eyes for 10 minutes. I'll get the two. You're good at delayed gratification. Delayed gratification has an underbelly. Do you know what it is? It's this. We, we, do, we adopt this language regarding work where we say, as soon as this goal and milestone is met, then I'll rest. As soon as, right? And that language, as soon as, that's destructive, because I say, as, look, as soon as I get my master's degree, then I'll rest. No, you won't. Because then you, once you have your master's degree, you'll be like this. Now I have money and we're married. And then you won't rest, I tell you, right? <laughs> and, and then you'll have children, and then you won't rest. But you'll say, oh, yeah, I'll rest later because the children, you know, once they're in school. No, when they're in school, then, you know, soccer, cello, baseball, Harvard entry exams at three years old, whatever. I mean, all, you know, we had to, you know, push, drive as soon as they leave home. No, then there's more stuff to do, more money to make, more travel, more, more, more. And then we say as soon as, as soon as, as soon as. And then you wake up dead one day and you're like this, what happened? Where, where was my time with my children? Where, where was my rest? Where was my sleep? So in Mark 2, Jesus makes this profound declaration, and don't have time for the context, but basically, here's what Jesus says. The Sabbath is a command, but man, it's a gift to you. So take it seriously. And not only take it seriously, learn to enjoy it. Well, here's what happened. Religion grabbed hold of it, and it got perverted, the Sabbath. In particularly two ways, spiritualized and legalized. Let's talk about the Sabbath spiritualized. In Hebrews 4.10, 
uh, God says, the one who enters God's rest has rested from his own work, even as God rested from his work on the seventh day. And in Hebrews, God is inviting people to enter God's, quote-unquote, Sabbath rest, right? This is Hebrews chapter 4. God is saying to a Jewish group of Christians, keep growing in Christ. And what he means by that is get to the point where you're entering God's rest. And what is God's rest? Here's God's rest. Uh, we emulate Jesus, that's God's rest. And how did Jesus live? Jesus had this phrase, not my own. My teaching's not my own, it's from the Father. My will's not my own. My strength is not my own. My judgment's not my own. My works are not my own. My time is not my own. Jesus lived this kind of life of humble availability, being filled with nothing less than the life of God, so that he could just say, look, I'm at rest. I don't have any plans. It's God's life in me. And now God says to you and I, live that way, in relationship to Christ in the same way that Christ lived in relationship with God. So that you're now saying, look, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Dead people rest quite well. So if you're crucified with Christ, then you're in rest because you're like this. I don't have a will. I don't have an agenda. I don't have a plan. I don't have a reputation to preserve. All I want to do is let Christ express life through me. That's rest. And that's kind of this spiritual form of rest that has nothing to do with a quote-unquote day off. And, and here's the problem. Some people have taken the spiritual form of rest and substituted it for the literal reality of the need of a, uh, of a day of Sabbath rest. And it shouldn't be either or. It should be what? Both and. Both are, both are very important. I have a friend in ministry who says to me, I'm always at rest but his blood pressure is through the roof and he doesn't sleep well and he's on hard meds. And I worry, is he really always at rest? And, and, and what's behind his kind of seven-day drive to change the world is this sense that I don't need a day because God has taken this Sabbath principle and spiritualized it. And here, I'm here to tell you, though God did take that Sabbath principle and spiritualize it, if you can't practice it literally, you will never practice it spiritually. And so God wants us to practice it both ways. Do you see? I mean, there is no other commandment of the Ten that we, that we uh, spiritualize. Like of the Ten Commandments, try spiritualizing adultery. It just doesn't work, right? Like if my small group comes to me, hypothetically, just to be clear, <laughs> and, and, and says, hey, Richard, we see that you're sleeping with your neighbor's wife. And I say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not adultery. And people are like this, what do you mean it's not adultery? I go, yeah, well, I mean, I'm sleeping with her, but that's not what God meant in the Ten Commandments at all. I mean, God, you know, I'm the bride of Christ, and so I'm faithful to Jesus. When God said don't commit adultery, he meant don't commit spiritual adultery. And I'm not committing spiritual adultery. I'm fine. Try that out in your small group, friends. See what happens. <laughs> right? People are going to, this is, I'll tell you what people say. That's rubbish or another word, whatever, but people will say, no, look, no, adultery is adultery. And so do not commit adultery means don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. And so by the way, if we're going to be consistent, Sabbath is what? Sabbath, and that means take a day. Take it seriously. So... Um, you're not fine if you're committing adultery because adultery is adultery. And you're not fine if you're violating Sabbath because Sabbath is Sabbath. Now, if one group spiritualizes Sabbath, initially, 
uh, in Judaism, the Sabbath was legalized. And this is the way it works. And I don't mean to offend any lawyers in the room, but I will say, here's a sentence, right? Six days work, on the seventh day do what? No work. Then the lawyers got a hold of that sentence, and it became a book, a book of law, right? Because the lawyers, and I mean by lawyers, I mean religious professionals who were charged with kind of holding Israel accountable to keeping the law. They said, yeah, work, what is that? And so then they created literally 39 categories of labor forbidden on the Sabbath. God didn't create them, they did, the, the, the lawyers did. 30, there's 39 categories, and then each category has headings and subheadings of what those categories include that constitutes work. Huge burden, right? So for example, here's the th- I'm going to give you the 39 categories. What can you not do? And remember, each one of these has pages of commentary. Each one of these 39. There, there is to be on the Sabbath no sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, winnowing, selecting. No selecting. <laughs> Grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, cleaning, combing, dyeing, spinning, stretching threads, making loops, weaving thread, separating the threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing, tearing, trapping, breaking down, extinguishing a fire, kindling a fire, striking the final hammer blow, or carrying. There's your categories. Go enjoy your day. (laughs) Right? And then with each of these categories, uh, further debate. No carrying? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, it turns out, uh, you have to, if you're going to carry something, you have to weigh it before you, before you carry it. And if it, if it weighs more than two dried figs, no, then you can't carry it. That's work. So, two dried figs? I don't know. Violation. Do you see, you see what happens? So then, Jesus is healing a guy on the Sabbath, and this group who are generationally connected to those who wrote the law, like the the interpretation of enjoy the Sabbath, this group, they're wagging their finger at Jesus. Why'd you heal that guy on the Sabbath? It's work. And Jesus says, you guys just don't get it, do you? This isn't intended to be some burden. This is a gift for you. Just like, by the way, all the other nine commandments are also a gift. No time for that today. But it's a gift and now you're, you've perverted the gift by making it a big legal burden. So, Sabbath is spiritualized, Sabbath is legalized, and as a result of these two perversions, you know what? Here's really what happens for us in the room Sabbath is neglected. It's just neglected. And this began, of course, clear back in Exodus 16 when God said, One omar a day you gather of manna, and then two omars on day six, and then they go out and they and they try and gather on on day seven. But then, but 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 then you get to Nehemiah, which historically is hundreds of years later. Israel in the wilderness, Israel in the land, Israel as a nation, civil war, idolatry, demise of the nation. Return now to, to the nation after hauled off into captivity. Return, and now as a return nation, rebuilding the wall around the city. Nehemiah said, like they they have seen God judge them for violating the Sabbath. I mean, Amos, Hosea, like Habakkuk, they all said the same thing. You guys are neglecting the Sabbath, right? 
And now here we are. We're back in the land. We're rebuilding the wall. And what does Nehemiah say in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 17? What is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us in the city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. This is our biggest issue. Not spiritualizing, not legalizing, neglecting. And it's in the human heart to not trust God, to want more and more and more. We have a hard time resting. So kind of the question on the table is this, how do we restore the Sabbath? And the answer is this, uh, look, we're called to seek, as uh, uh, Matthew 11 says, rest for our soul. We're called to seek rest for our soul. And, and uh, we do that so that we can, having been aligned with God's rhythms, live in this body as whole people. Because our body is made for this rhythm of evening and morning. So get enough sleep. Get enough sleep. Our body is made for this rhythm, six days and one. So take a day away from. That's what Sabbath is. It's a day, quote, unquote, away from. And you have to figure out what you will step away from. But the goal of stepping away from should be to what? Restore. So what are you going to step away from that will help you restore? That's the question. And for many of us in the room, it's just a, this broad category of work. But it may be more than work. It may be work, and I'm going to step away from the Internet. It may be work, and I'm going to step away from the television. It may be work, and I'm going to step away from the garden. But a day stepping away with a goal of restoring. And for me, it means a day, uh, like the, what's restorative to me is going outside. But, but it's not restorative to me to go outside and try and, you know, summit three peaks and come home exhausted. Because remember, the, what's the point of Sabbath? To restore. So, so for me, it's like outside in the morning and then a little nap in the afternoon and then a little reading, a little rest, right? So we're called to restore. And listen, in this restoration... The purpose is to enjoy fellowship, both with God, with others, and with creation, right? So, like, like Sabbath is for this. Someone's messaging? <laughs> Do you guys hear a little bird? Yeah, okay. So, restore with God, with others, and with creation. That's the goal. And we all need to figure out how to do that. And so to do that, there's kind of three questions I want to ask you. Question number one, do you trust God as provider? This was the problem in Exodus 17 and 16. You know, when people went out a second time, they didn't believe that God was going to provide enough for them. And so, you know, we pray this prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. We pray, give us this day our what? Daily bread. There's an there's a, there's a underlying belief. There should be an underlying belief in our lives that, yeah, we're called to work, but here's the deal. If I live into the rhythm of work and rest, God will provide for me. Now, all of us have a hard time learning this lesson. Or I, I should most of us have a hard time learning this lesson. In 1990, my wife Donna and I, we moved to the mountains. We started a nonprofit ministry. It was kind of wilderness-based stuff and Bible teaching. Uh, and we were not afraid to work hard to make the ministry go. And so work hard we did. We had guests in. We rented the cabins. Donna wrote a, uh, or I wrote a grant for Skagit County. Donna administered the grant as a bookkeeper. I refereed 
one winter, 600 basketball games, you know, to put money on the, put bread on the table kind of thing. And so guests, yes. Cabins, yes. Grant writing, yes. Grant administrating, yes. Basketball, yes. Teaching overseas, yes. Cleaning toilets, yeah. Every, like we did, it, we did everything. And uh, I'd go off to Canada and speak. And I'd, bring, I'd call Donnie and say, bring five students home for the weekend. And she'd go, really? I'd, Come on, I've been homeschooling all week and the, and the septic system broke down and we lost power for a day and I had to haul water from the river and, and uh, I'm a little tired. And I said, no, 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 it's God's work, man. Let's do it. We'll have all the strength we need, right? Like, this is ridiculous. And then I go, we did that for three years that way. Just treadmill. And I go to England and I'm at this conference and this guy is speaking and he, he's speaking all, we're all ministry people and we're all people who, are, we're in this community that tends to spiritualize the Sabbath, frankly, right? Oh yeah, yeah you, you don't need a day off. You have all God's strength. And then this guy speaking, he goes, some of you are excited to be here. Some of you are anxious about your ministries back home. He says, but some of you, he says, some of you are really tired. Man, like, I felt like God had taken like a bat and swung and hit me in the head. Like it was so convicting. That's me. I'm exhausted. I didn't even know it until I got there, right? Like if I knew it because I got on, as soon as I got on the plane, my adrenaline stopped for the first time in three years and I got the flu on the plane. And so I was sick when I arrived and then I was supposed to speak, whatever. It's all good. But the guy, when he said, some of you are tired, that's me. That was it for basketball officiating for me. I had to take a step. Like, what's a step of trusting God? No more. <laughs> Out of the gym. No more. None. So we all have to figure it out. But it, this is the, for us, it was a fundamental question. We're going to learn to trust God as a provider. And we learned. And God, and God provided. We have to learn that lesson over and over again. Second, do I believe that God's work doesn't need me? Uh, in Luke 19, 36 to 40, Jesus is entering uh, Jerusalem, and some people are like, oh, uh, uh, they're praising God. They're praising Jesus. Hosanna, you know, they're singing songs to Jesus. And then some of the, some of the crowd, the followers of Christ, they say to Jesus, hey, tell those kids to shut up. Because, you know, kids, right? And then what does Jesus say? He says, no, 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 listen, if the kids don't praise me, what? Even the rocks will cry out. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Praise is ordained to me. Like, I will be praised, and, if, and the kids, if the kids don't praise, someone else will praise. And this is a very important principle, because this is part of Sabbath. Sabbath is me saying, uh, God doesn't need me to get God's work done. That's a big deal. God doesn't need me to provide for me, but God doesn't even need me to get the work done. God's kingdom is going to come with or without me. My friend died of a paragliding accident in Austria who was running the torchbearer school there. And there was some concern among certain people, like, will the, is this ministry going to continue? It's doing just fine, right? Uh, because God doesn't need any particular person. So, like, if I die in the next couple of minutes, Nathan gets up here, there's a note, he finishes the sermon, we move on, Right? <laughs> It's not about me. It's not about you. It's that we can rest. We can rest. 
oh man, you know what? There are people in ministry who are afraid when I talk this way. Because they're like, oh man, Richard, if you say that God doesn't need people, why will they serve? You gotta guilt them in, you know? Let them know, man, if you don't teach Sunday school, those kids are burning in hell forever. No, they're not. Like, I'm here to tell you, if you don't teach, that's your loss. Hello? God's work gets done. You're not, you're not, you know, beaten into service. You're invited in. Why? Nothing greater. You're made for it. So, hey, if you don't serve, you're neglecting your calling. But never think that in serving, God needs you. <laughs> and that should be actually liberating for all of us in the room, right? Teaching precious young lives might be your calling, and you're invited in. Hosting a small group might be your calling. You're invited in. Loving your neighbors, you're invited in. Caring for your children, you're invited in. And if you say no, the work goes on. It's your loss, not God's. Never serve out of a a view of indispensability. Because it's always a lie. It's always a lie. And third question, the third question, first question, do I trust my provider? Second, do I believe God's work doesn't need me? Third, is fellowship with God and people in creation meaningful to me? It's a really important question. Like, is, is fellowship important to me, meaningful? For many people, endless work and, and hard-driving recreation on the weekends is a way of avoiding the very things for which we're created. I mean, we're created for fellowship with God, with one another, and with creation. We're made for fellowship. And it's easy to hide behind working all the time. Because when I'm working all the time, I can pretend that I actually want to be with my children, but it's just a job. Or I can pretend that I actually want to uh, uh, read God's book of creation, but I'm just too busy to ever, ever be outside. Or pretend that I really am wanting to enjoy, you know, fellowship with God, but I'm just too busy. And, and, And so... Then we say to ourselves, yeah, 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 fellowship with others, fellowship with creation, fellowship with God. I'll get to it later. Right now, the, you know, there's one marshmallow, and I'm going after two. So later, I'm all, yeah, I love it. I mean, people, you know, family, friends, rest, sleep, all super important, just later. And here's what God is saying. If later is more than six days away, you're missing the point. If later is more than six days away, you're missing the point. Why? Because uh, the point is to commit to some kind of a legalistic thing. The point is to get the principle, and the principle is this. Sabbath is, be, is based on the belief that God is sustaining the world with or without you, and that you're invited to stop and enjoy what God is doing. What God is doing in you, with you, through you, with the community in which you're a part, that's Sabbath. And I, I would say all of us in the room need to practice this, just like any other commandment. And then if we believe that God is sustaining the world, we'll, we'll also pray for other people. And that's the second principle, prayer for others. Uh, when, I, when I pray for others, I pray for others because I believe that prayer makes a difference. When God spoke uh, to Moses in Exodus 32, uh, he, he said to Moses, hey, Moses, Moses up on the mountain with God. He says, Moses, get down off the mountain Go down to the people have made an idol. You, know, you, probably, you may know the story. The people made an idol. And so get down there. I want you to give a word for me. And then, and then what does God say? Then he says, then Moses, stand back and destroy the whole nation. Boom. Now, why do I want to start over? 
right? And Moses, do you know what Moses says? Moses says, yeah, that's right, God, you're sovereign. You do whatever you want, so I'm good with that. It's cool. No, it's a great story. Moses is so intimate with God that Moses says to God, Moses says to God, hey, God, do you realize that if you destroy the people, then all the other nations will say, with evil intent, God brought them out of Egypt to slay them in the wilderness. So God, your reputation is at stake. I'm praying, don't destroy the people. And then here's this verse that Calvinists hate. So God changed his mind regarding the nation of Israel. (laughs) What? How does God change his mind? Whatever. Here's the point. Here's the point. God is asking us to pray for people. And God is saying in that story and a dozen other places, when you pray, I act in response to your prayers. So God's inviting us to participate with God in in the unfolding work that God's doing in the world by praying. And it is, I can't tell you, it's just delightful to pray for others and know that in praying, I brought somebody before God, now I can rest in my relationship with them. Why? I've prayed for them. That's all I can do sometimes. And so if you're wondering, how do I pray for other people? I'm going to give you three ways very quickly as we close. First, just pray the prayers of the Bible. Like Philippians 1, 9 through 11 is one of Paul's prayers. Just look at it for Ephesians 3, beginning in verse like 16 or so, it's one of Paul's prayers. So, so find a person and pray for them. And just pray the prayers of the Bible. Your spouse... Pray for them that way. A neighbor, pray for them. Your children, pray for them. Me, pray for me. Thank you, right? I mean, there's all kinds of people you can pray for. And if you don't know what to pray, pray prayers of Scripture. Second, here's the other thing. This is so beautiful. If you don't know what to pray, just say the person's name. God, I bring before you, and then you say the name. I do that every morning, six prayers in the shower for each one of my children, the three that I have and the three that they married. I pray for all of them every day. And I don't necessarily know what's going on in each of their lives at any given moment, but I know this. I'm at rest regarding their soul because I'm praying. And I know God's active in their life in response to my prayers. And Romans 8 says, if you don't know what to pray, just just bring what you know and God will fill in the blanks. So I just bring people before God. And then, uh, you know, I pray for God's kingdom to come because in Matthew 6, I'm told to. May your kingdom come. May, may, and that's a way of praying every day. May human trafficking end. May hunger end. May poverty in this city end. May homelessness in this city end. May violence end. May mass killings end. May war end. May terror end. Pray for God's kingdom to come. Rest and pray. Perhaps of everything we'll talk about in this little series, these are the two most neglected. And our souls are in poverty because we refuse the gifts that God has given us, the gifts of rest. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that you invite us to these simple principles, but they're hard to apply. We know that we're very much like the children of Israel. 
going out on, on, on the Sabbath day and looking for more Omars, looking for more, more entertainment, more adrenaline, more investments, more shopping, more. Teach us to step away, Father, in order that we might be people of rest in a weary world. We pray in Christ's name, amen. As we close together, I'm going to invite you to do this. Uh, there's a little response in the bulletin. One day a week, I will step away from something. Like any other principle, Sabbath can be overwhelming. Maybe you don't start with a big picture, but maybe you say, I'm going to step away from the internet one day a week. I'm going to step away from, I'm going to turn my phone off one afternoon a week. I'm going to step away from my job. I'm going to step away from my garden. I'm going to step away from my adrenaline addiction, uh, my, my sport hobby. I'm going to step away in order to step toward fellowship, good food, candlelight, rest. And in my stepping away, I will pray for, and then you name a person. Look, it's in your bulletin. One day a week, step away so that you can step toward and pray. Take a step this morning, especially if you're weary, and many of us are.